And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. You know, managing assets and of all different shapes and forms can be a challenge. What am I? What do I even mean by that? Well, hang out and listen because we're going to talk all about changing the asset management model. Before I introduce today's guest, today's episode, Startup Hustle is powered by FullScale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult, and FullScale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably, and has the platform to help you manage that team. Go to FullScale.io to learn more. If you weren't aware, that's my business, and we love talking to Startup Hustle listeners. So please click the link in the show notes. It takes about two minutes or less to fill out the form and let us know what you need help with. Joining me for today's conversation is Stephen Woods. And Stephen is the founder and CEO at Sterling Shire. You can go to sterlingshire.com to learn more. And don't try to figure out how to spell that. Just scroll on down to the show notes and click the link that's provided. Now, originally from Kansas City, my hometown, but now in the wild, wild world of New York, New York, Stephen, welcome to Start a Puzzle. Uh, thank you very much. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, definitely from Kansas City. Just got back for the draft, and that was great to come back for. Yeah, I was the only person in Kansas City. Well, I accidentally scheduled a trip with my wife somewhere else and then realized that it was during the NFL draft, and I was like, I'm still going on the trip. So. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, let's let's start today's conversation with a little bit more about your backstory. We know you're from Kansas City, but, you know, tell us a little more about yourself and, and you know, and, and please along the way, define as, the asset management model that that we will be talking about changing today. Sure, sure. So um, that, just to define that really quickly. Whenever I talk about the asset management model, we're talking about professional asset managers like uh, financial advisors, um, uh, things of that nature, dealing in stocks, options, ETFs, mutual funds, uh, bonds, what have you. Um, so my my backstory, uh, it's <laughs> a, a little little different, right? Um, born and raised in Kansas City, you know, good student, straight A student. Parents kind of got divorced at the age of 14. By 16, I had dropped out of high school, completely left high school. Um, joined a, a, kind of like a military program at the age of 17, where I got my GED down in Camp Clark, Nevada, Missouri. Um, then went off to... Is that Wentworth? So I did go to Wentworth. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at. So, so yeah. I finished, finished up, got my GED there. Then... Um, the United States Army says, you know, we want to make you an officer in the Army. I said, oh, well, that's that sounds good. They said, we're going to pay for all your education at, uh, at Wentworth Military Academy, make you a second lieutenant. Uh, went off to uh, Wentworth three months later, 9-11 happens. Um, I get uh, injured on a field training exercise several months later, and they gave me an option to stay in as enlisted or, or, or get out because my rehab was going to be about a year. I kind of 
you know, took what I considered, you know, the, the way out and ended up leaving the military. Uh, you know, when I joined, I didn't anticipate, you know, <laughs> actually going off to war. Right. Um, so end up bartending around the country for, for six years, Havasu, Hollywood, all these, uh, uh fun places like the Ozarks, um, 2008 comes around stock market tanks. I've always had an, I had always had an affinity for the markets and I decided, you know, that thing's going to come back. And when it does, I have to be part of it. Right. So started sending out my resume every single Monday to like 60 firms for six months. Uh, needless to say, not a lot of people were in the, in the, uh, in the market to hire someone with a GED. So it took a long time to get an interview. Finally, I get a phone call on a Thursday guys like they're serious be in my office on Monday. So I had a poor man's Ferrari out of Pontiac Fiero, uh, which I sold on Craigslist in 45 minutes. I bought a thousand dollar suit and a plane ticket to New York came out. Um, he said, listen, I'm going to put you in the, in the trainee program. Uh, and basically it pays $250 a week. You know, this is in 2000, uh, 2009. I jumped at it, uh, moved, moved to New York, you know, scratched and clawed got my series seven, became a stockbroker, um, built my business up pretty quickly. Um, you know, my, my fourth month in the industry, you know, my paycheck was like $40,000 for the month. And I couldn't believe it. Come to find out a few months later in, 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 at that firm that they were doing some things that were kind of nefarious to say the least. Right. So I, I walk into FINRA. FINRA was like the police of stockbrokers. I report everything that I, that I know this firm, by the way, my, my boss at the time, he was uh, in the movie Wall Street 2, uh, uh, bald-headed guy. Uh, and uh, anyways, FINRA shuts down the firm. Now I have this kind of black cloud hanging over me that this cat, this guy will, if you're doing something wrong, he's going he's gonna to tell. But anyways, continue building up my, my career um, for you know, many years. And uh, COVID comes, and I decide... You know, I've seen enough of this industry to know that there's a lot of nefarious things taking place. And I wanted to kind of clean it up and do things in a totally different way. Um, resigned from the firm I was working at, got some world-class talent to help me build out um, Sterling Shire, including the former chairman of the SECs on my board of directors. And my, my CTO is uh, the former global head of technology for State Street and former director of the London Stock Exchange. And then, you know, spent the last uh, uh, two and a half years building out the platform, getting it through FINRA and SEC approval. Went back to school, ended up uh, becoming a Harvard Business School alum. And uh, yeah, here, here we are. We're just, uh, we're, we're, you know, been in the markets now for the last, you know, four or five months, hiring brokers and advisors. And uh, so far, so good. So with, you know, with Sterling Shire and talking about change, what, what, what was the big thing? What's the, the big problem that you needed to solve if you wanted to change asset management? Like what I get that, I mean, in the history of the market and maybe capitalism and maybe even just transactions in general, there's always been bad actors doing nefarious things, but what specifically about, about asset management did you guys seek to solve what problem did you seek to solve and how did you how did you fix it right so whenever we we think about um the asset management model there's really a couple different ways that people can make 
advisors make money and, and clients pay fees, right? There's the one side is what's known as the wrap fee model, which is where somebody charges a percentage of your assets on a yearly basis, right? So that might be 1% or 2%. The, the downfall with that is if you are charging a wrap fee, that advisor, what's going to happen is they're going to get your money and then they're going to spend, they're going to throw it into several different mutual funds or whatever it is. Then they're going to spend 99% of their entire life trying to find more clients and find more money. They're not, not actually trying to make you money. Right. And so the whole time you're paying just to pay if it's up, down, sideways, whatever. Right. The second, the, the second way that advisors make money is on a transactional basis, which is charge a little bit on the buy side, a little bit on the sell side. And what that does is that, you know, kind of creates a situation where it's move the money, move the money, move the money, right? And that's not good for, for anybody either. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to more uh, closely align the compensation that the advisors received directly to the actual performance of uh, the things that they're doing in the portfolio. So uh, with us, the only time that the advisor necessarily uh, makes money is whenever they're making money for the client. Which is probably the way it should be, right? Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, yeah and I'm familiar with these things because, you know, as, as I've grown older and given uh, given more attention to the future of stuff, you know, you, you talk to, well, I am a, I am a prime target for uh, call lists of mm -hmm. financial advisors is what I've learned. In fact, it's annoying. Um, there's a ton of them and you, you're right. They either want to get paid. They want a percentage of whatever it is they're managing. And I've had so many conversations with people over the years that sign up. And I mean, I don't even, I'm not even going to name places, but they sign up, they make this huge deposit and then they feel ghosted yeah. afterward. And I've actually had that happen to myself. Um, and you know, then you mentioned the transactional nature of things and that's where the person's getting paid to, you know, buy and sell stocks. Well, that is a, that's a flawed approach too, because why are you buying and selling things? Is it just because you make more money doing it? I, you know, I've worked alongside, you know, thousands of advisors here on wall street. And I can tell you that generally speaking, yes, they're just buying or selling something simply to make a commission, not necessarily because it's, you know, well, in the, yeah, in, 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 the, in Wolf of Wall Street, Matthew McConaughey has a pretty uh, colorful scene where he's like, fuck the clients, you know, we make money off buying and selling things and it's the commission and that turns into straight cash. And, you yeah, know, yeah. It's like, there, I mean, there's a saying, there's a saying, um, and not to give away too many secrets of the, the dirty side of the industry, but you, you, you turn the, the client's money and the broker's experience into the client's experience and the broker's money. Yeah. Right? And uh, so we wanted to, we wanted to kind of fix that. Um, so we, you know, we developed a, a platform that also not, not only makes it so that the advisor can't really take advantage of the clients, uh, in, in the way that we described, but it actually makes it so that the firms can't take advantage of the advisors because how this works is the, the firms take advantage of the advisors and that culture kind of rolls downhill to the advisors then taking advantage of the clients, right? So if I'm, if I'm a, an advisor at JP Morgan, right, and I'm doing a million dollars in what we call front-end commission, which is like asset management fees, I'm going to take home $350,000. That's going to be roughly, you know, 200 base, 150 bonus. 
uh, per every million in production that I'm doing. And at the end of the day, um, you know, as a, an, an advisor, I'm doing basically all the client acquisition, asset allocation and things like that. So the reason why JP Morgan is able to keep 650,000 of that million is because they're JP Morgan, right? They have this brand equity and, and uh, things of that nature. But we see a lot of advisors now trying to break away to the independent side. And on the independent side, uh, they might move over to a firm that you've never heard of, like an LPL or something like that. If they do that same million in production, they're going to take home 650 to 750,000. But we wanted to create a, a model that allowed us to give them the full million dollars in front end production. Um, because at the end of the day, the firms were really just providing access to the market. So just to provide access in the market, we, re, we, we didn't feel that um, the firms were deserving of that much of the, the actual revenue. So you know, how we've set it up, we, we have a, a patent pending trade confirmation process that allows us to shift a lot of the regulatory risk and liability off the firm. So what I, what I mean by that is if I wanted to pay everybody 100% and have them all work from home, by the way, this is fully work from home. The advisors don't have to go back to the office ever um, if they don't want to. Um, but if I'm going to pay everybody 100% and have them work from home, any firm that tries that, they're going to go bankrupt if they can't solve two main issues. Those two main issues are going to be unauthorized trading and regulation best interest. So this is really important. This is what we put together. Unauthorized trading is when an advisor buys or sells something for a client without the client's approval. Now, 99% of the time, that's not done in a nefarious manner. It's normally a situation where, I'll, let's say you're my client, you say, you say, Steve, I, I trust what you're doing. If you see something, you think it's going to make me some money or save me some money and you can't get me on the phone, you know, just go ahead and do it. And everybody's fine and dandy with that if I'm making you money every time, right? But if I do something for you and uh, uh, the value drops significantly, we're going to need to bust trades, rebate losses, put stock back into accounts. So if the potential for unauthorized trading exists, uh, then we need to set aside a good chunk of money to deal with problems that, that could arise. The, now, the second thing is actually more nuanced, and it's a much bigger issue, um, which is regulation best interest. That's that's a law that went into effect about four years ago, uh, sorry, a rule by the SEC that states anytime I even make a recommendation to you, if I call you up and I say, Matt, I think we should buy Tesla, right? It needs to be within your risk tolerance, your investment objectives, everything. So what this has done, this has actually put the bat in the client's hand, meaning I can work with hundreds of clients for years. Any one of them can wake up on the wrong side of the bed and say, Steve, I think everything you've done for me is outside of my risk tolerance and investment objectives. I think we would have made or saved $300,000 more if you'd have done X, Y, and Z. Give me money, right? And so the firm's then going to have to you know, throw $50,000 at that problem to make it go away. So our platform, in essence, is reduce those risks and liabilities significantly uh, in a manner that allows us to pay more than every other firm in the industry. So essentially this is on a white label platform that yep. allows for direct market access for independent advisors. Correct. Right. Okay. Okay. Then, I mean, that then, makes sense. Yeah. And then and we I, make all of our revenue on the, on the back end through right. margin interest, you know, fully paid stock lending. So we make money like E-Trade and TD Ameritrade, but we're able to operate as a full service advisor where we're actually telling you what we think you should be buying and selling. And we're doing this in a way that 
you know, we tie the comp directly to the performance as opposed to the actual AUM. Right. And, you know, that's, that's a, one of the things that, you know, why do, okay, why does someone like me who, all right, look, I got a superpower of making money. I'm good at making money. I'm not necessarily good at the stock market because that's not what I, that's not the problem I wake up every day trying to solve. Right. And then on top of it, there's, I mean, the number of securities and products and everything um, that, that can or could be traded, it feels infinite. And then on top of it, as a retail trader, I have a significant advantage because in most cases I'm operating what, at least 20 minutes behind the actual real time, anything. Right. So what we try to do here, right, is we give you access to a professional grade platform with, you know, real time, everything. And especially a guy like you, you'd actually probably be our, our target market, right? Our target market is, you know, someone net worth, you know, a million to, you know, a hundred million, right? That's, that's kind of going to be our, 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 our sweet spot. Um, and we know that someone like you, if Apple's down 30% in a couple months, we know you probably don't need a broker to say, Hey, Matt, I, I think you should buy some, right? You can just log right in and buy it yourself. There's you know, no commission. Um, you know, just like any other firm where we're going to, where we're going to add value, right? Is these, uh, financial advisors are going to be able to bring you things that you might not know about, right? Or if you're maybe over levered in something, we can kind of be the the second set of eyes to say, you know, I think we should, you know, trim here or whatever. And the only time you're actually going to pay is whenever, for example, I call you up and say, or an advisor calls you up and says, Matt, I think we should buy X, Y, Z. Here's why I think we should buy it. And then you make money on it. Um, so in the future, whenever you sell it for a profit, you know, there's a commission attached for that. But anytime that you're doing anything yourself, um, you know, it's, it operates kind of like a E-Trade or a TD Ameritrade. Okay. So most of the time you've heard people say, don't fight the 800 pound gorilla that's in the room. You decided to fight the 80,000 pound yeah. gorilla in the room, um, attempts to disrupt financial models that, that honestly need to be disrupted. Mm-hmm. But you know, you're sitting, so with that, um, you're David and they're Goliath. How do you go about planning for that battle? Well, the first thing I've done whenever I started out to build this is I tried to get the best team around me possible, right? Cause I'm just, you know, I'm just one guy. So, um, you know, I went out and I got you know, the former global head of technology for state street to join me as my, my CTO got the former chair, one of the former chairman of the SEC to, to join my board. Um, our chief market strategist is the former director of research for Wellington Management, which has over a trillion in AUM. So our, our, I guess like our kind of go-to-market strategy, I built the, put these guys around us. And then um, we're not trying to drive inbound client flow at this time. What we're trying to do is drive the you know, breakaway advisors from JP Morgan, from these other locations, by saying, hey, you know, bring your clients with you. And, you know, instead of a 35% payout, you're going to be on a 100% payout. You don't have to get, you know, called back to the office, right? Um, so right now we're just in the process of proving out the model, right? Proving that the model works. And then uh, with the first 40 advisors that, that we're bringing onto the platform. And then from there, it's just scale it up. You know, our goal is to hire 5,000 advisors over the next five years. Uh, to put that in perspective, UBS has 6,500. Um, 
So uh, that's that's kind of our our five year target there. Yeah, I've actually had a couple of friends that are financial advisors that worked for companies that you would have heard of and went to go start their own offices. And I'm actually in the last couple of years to have one that's a, a friend that I've talked to about, you know, doing some work for me and for others. And, you know, some of the questions I had, well, what's what's your platform? What do you what do you when you talk about asset management, um, while the majority of, of my investment is back into myself, um, there are more staple things that, you know, and you talk about retiring, you know, retirement products, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so part of with Sterling Shire as well is, is providing these uh, advisors the ability to show me what mm-hmm. my assets are doing. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. You have, you have uh, full control over your assets through the app, through the web platform. You can see what, what's going on at all times. One of the real benefits for the client who's dealt with the more full service side of things is it's sad to say, but let's say you have an advisor and something starts going the wrong way. You would be really surprised at how, how uh, quickly those advisors will hide under their desk and maybe not not take the phone call. Right. So, um, you know, it, it, it's great to give the client the ability to enter and exit a position without the advisor. So if something's going the wrong way and the person, the advisor is hiding under the desk, which we, you know, we don't want obviously, but uh, uh, the, the the client can you know exit their position uh, right there from their phone or their desktop. Well, and that's that's a real thing because if you look at someone that has a hundred clients that they're advising and shit's hitting the fan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned like that whole like, hey, let me call, let me say we want to do this, we want to do that. I mean, I want an advisor that's not. I don't want them to make that call. I want you to to move and act in my best interest. Um, cause if it, it, yeah. And then, you know, I mean, part of uh, as well too, is like, why, why would I hire a financial advisor? I mean, dude, cause if, unless you're sitting there watching this stuff all day, every day, these things can fluctuate wildly for you in a heartbeat. And, yeah. So that's why well, well, you, you mentioned Apple, like the, I read it in the, in the wall street journal the other day that the average personal portfolio is 19% Apple. Yes. And if for some reason that took a shit, right. that's going to have a big impact on a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, I think even I think Berkshire Hathaway's right now they're holding they're holding fifty three percent of their assets are in Apple, I believe. So I'm something close to that. And uh, so, you know, a hundred percent. If they start selling, you you want to, you know, Warren Buffett's up. probably not going to take my call whether I should buy no, or me, sell the Apple though. Me, me neither. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then some of that ties into a lot of different things. So you mentioned this is so Sterlingshire. You you with the asset manage, management. Uh, so some of that, so I do actually have financial advisement, but it's also tied into accounting and other things. Cause you know, like, here's the thing for those of you listening, if you, if you're just getting started with entrepreneurship, one of the things that becomes frustrating is that, okay, so full scale, my business, and I guess this is probably a good time to mention that today's episode startup hustles powered by full scale.io. We can help you build a software team quickly and affordably. But with that, you know, the, the complexity of, of finances for an entrepreneur uh, are exactly that they're, they're, they can be more complex and, you know, there's, uh, I don't know, man, there's a million different things. You know, part of my income comes from the, I, I do pay myself a salary as the CEO of my company. I get an override on our sales and our sales increases. And then if the company does well, myself and my business partner will receive dividends or distri- distributions as they are technically 
phrased, but they are essentially a dividend. All these things are taxed at different rates. You have all these different things that could occur. And then also com complex for me is I've got 300 employees in the Philippines. So I've not only got one set of books, I got two sets of books. And then here's another thing too. How about currency exchange? Currency exchange last year was a huge windfall for us because the US dollar strengthened itself by about 12% versus the Filipino peso, which meant that I actually had 12% more for every dollar. If that right. goes the other way, that can be a whole nother thing. And I, okay, so all this, all this stuff, all in becomes quite complex. And if I want to sell something, do I my best to sell something that would generate a big loss for me to write off against or like, and, and there's a lot of different moving parts. Does Sterling Shire give, give consideration or ease of accessibility to the accountants of the world that your financial advisors are often going to tell you, you should check with your accountant? Right. Um, so we, or is that coming? Yeah. So we, we don't do tax uh, work right. at this point. Uh, but we can point you in the direction of, uh, you know, some uh, tax professionals if, if you don't have one already, right? Right. Uh, but we, we for sure can help with the uh, tax loss selling and, and things of that nature. Right. Uh, they are, you know, See, but but the, I'm painting the picture of the complexity of, of yeah. asset management because, I mean, you could you might be surprised, like sometimes selling something or exiting something or creating a loss Absolutely. It can actually be a really good thing for you overall. If it's a, if it's a skunk kind of asset that you don't want anymore, that may save you a bunch of money on taxes because you wanted to get out of it anyway. And then yeah. sometimes it's best to just, you haven't technically made or lost any money until you buy or until you sell it. Exactly. And also um, a lot of times people will, you know, harvest losses with the intent to repurchase that, that same, that same uh, position. And so you really need somebody to, to make sure that you're not creating a, a wash sale so that uh, so that loss you know crystallizes. Um, so that's yeah. something that a financial advisor can you know, help with. Well, yeah, and there's a lot to be said with that. Okay, so you know, back to the eighty thousand eighty thousand pound gorilla. Mm -hmm. um, I see that you raised some money along the way to get this going. Um, how many people pointed out that you're fighting an 80,000 pound gorilla by bringing this to market? Um, well, I'd say it, not as many as you would expect, because I did this mainly friends and family and former, okay. some former clients. You know, we raised 1.6 million uh, and the majority of that is going to come from clients that I've had like a, uh, you know, a decent relationship with for, for many years. And then, uh, you know, some, some friends and family there in Kansas City. But what I have run into is the, the companies that I would typically go to that would help me as like a, a placement agent, right? Because I, I come from the equities, you know, public equities side of things. So I do have lots of connections and in various, you know, boutique firms that would, I could normally call on to, to help, um, you know, raise like an, another $10 million for me. But you, I, I've, I've, come across the same roadblock. That same roadblock is I can't go to a firm and have them put away a deal where the advisors are speaking to their clients and essentially saying this firm is going to change the asset management model and it's going to allow the advisors to keep a lot more money and it's going to you know uh, tie the compensation that they, they make more closely to performance because if this firm is marketing our deal. They're also helping us with recruitment. 
So all the firms that I would normally go to to do, do something like this, they love it right up until they find out I'm going to be able to pay the advisors 100%. And then they're like, oh, we can't bring that to our sales staff because our whole sales staff will leave. <laughs> What's the hardest part about being an asset manager, financial advisor? Like, because, you know, there's obviously, you know, as I mentioned, with kind of an annoying tone about it, I get hit up like all the time, like yeah. a lot, a lot, usually in LinkedIn. It's usually yeah. LinkedIn. It's usually, um, I, I get a connection request and it's got a really bad intro that sounds more like something that you would say to someone in a dating site. Right. You know, and then, and then, you know, it's like, it seems to me like that, that client acquisition, and then let's be realistic uh, for a lot of people. Like I, I dig the idea of the independent advisor. And someone that is, because um, it feels to me like like the excuse, the excuse, the reference Edward Jones, like you have offices set up next to great clips and right. strip malls and stuff like that. It doesn't really scream like you're giving me the best advice. I yeah. think that you know you well. You're from Kansas City, and I grew up in a part of Kansas City. Just to be transparent, that had that had some well-to-do people and I've had friends who've had parents on the covers of major magazines as financial advisors. They weren't working for JP Morgan. They had their own firm, you know, and, and so some of that, you've got to get through that, that credibility, that veil of credibility in some regards. And, you know, what's the hardest part about that for early stage advisors? Well, um, early stage advisors is definitely the hardest part is going to be the client acquisition, like without, without a doubt. Right. Um, if you don't, you know, you, you have to put in 80 hour weeks minimum as you're building your book, you know, for the first you know, couple of years, at least. Um, and, and that's a lot of times just going to be uh, grinding it out, cold outreach. If you don't have a big network of people to go to, if you don't have, you know, the, you know, the the alumni groups and the friends and family and things like a lot of that's going to be, you're going to annoy people with LinkedIn messages and you're going to uh, annoy them with cold calls, you know? Yeah. And I uh, get that. Now uh, that's if you're at an independent shop, like if you do go to something like a, a, a JP Morgan, they are going to, you know, kind of assign you um, some accounts. Um, you're going to be able to you know, target the people at the Chase Bank. Same thing with Merrill Lynch. You're going to be able to target the people at you know, Bank of America and things like that. So it's going to be a little a little easier. Um, but yeah, th this platform was kind of designed as a turnkey solution for advisors who want to go independent, who want to instead of instead of spending uh, you know two years getting through FINRA and SEC approval to set up your own shop. You know, we've already created a solution right here where I can have you up and running in two to three days, you know, um, with, with, with our platform. What kind of compliance hoops did you have to jump through and run around to even make this possible? Yeah. So FINRA approval, they say takes six to nine months. Um, what's it took FINRA? Us, what, by fin, the way, what's FINRA? FINRA is like the police of stockbrokers. They're okay. the regular, they're the regulatory body. Um, so, it ended up instead of six to nine months, it took us two and almost two and a half years from the first moment that we filed uh, to get through through FINRA approval. 
um, because they've They're never proven seen the them. point that things usually take two to three times longer and often cost the same multiple to actually bring to market. Uh, what what was the what was the most annoying though is you know we raised all the, the all the money that we that we raised was supposed to you know get us through the the first two years and Finra you know whenever they were doing their the approval process right your our cap table was completely locked like I couldn't raise additional money because if I brought on new investors they wanted to start the due diligence process over from the very beginning on on this person or this entity or whatever and so I had to make you know, this money lasts, <laughs> like I said, three times longer than it, than it should have. Um, but anyways, yeah, the, the regulatory process was very, very uh, intense to say the least. They wanted to go through every little, every little piece of the, of the platform. This is, you know, this is not like just starting a software company where, you know, the, yeah, you have to answer the government about everything. Well, and that's not, that's not uncommon. I mean, there's, you know, you go through the same thing with a ton of different industries. And, you know, the thing is, is as you mentioned, that these things are not always going to happen at the pace that you want them to happen with. Um, yeah. Also, rules and regulations change. Um, you know, you look at like, why does, why is something like TurboTax maybe a better option than some accountants? Because the amount of tax code in general compared to the tax amount of tax code that changes every year is humanly impossible to keep up with. Absolutely. It is absolutely tough to deal with. And then changes in, I don't know, changes in all of it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, overall that's, I mean, that, that dude, that sounds excruciating. I'm not, I'm not a, I'm glad I'm in the business of building software based on the uh, based on the parameters and guidelines that other people set up, not the ones that I have to dance around third party regulation. Because you could very much start a build like you're talking about, and by the time that two years later, you could have some wildly different rules. I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. There was a there was a couple things that we built in there that um, you know we had to <laughs> we had to change due to some guidance guidance from from Finra, but. Um, overall, uh, you know, you know, we just, if I'd have known how difficult the FINRA approval process was, um, I might not have started, but I was, I was just dumb enough, I guess that, uh, you know, I just took it one hurdle as one hurdle at a time. There's a lot of things as an entrepreneur that later, if I would have known they would have been that difficult, I, I might not have, have tried, <laughs> but at the same time, when you're the per, when you actually make it through that stuff, like you're kind of happy for that barrier of entry because it does act as a moat or a shield for keeping everybody else from running up behind you in some Absolutely. regards. Now, now with that, it, it, I'm sure that there's been, there's other competition that you're out there dealing with. So speaking of that, the one question uh, that does come up a lot is, well, how come somebody else doesn't just, you know, how come somebody else doesn't do this or hasn't done this, right? And I, I lay it out like this. The most beloved banker in the industry is Jamie Dimon, right? Everyone loves him. But if he came out tomorrow and he said, you know, we're going to, these tens of billions of dollars in front-end revenue that we get from the financial advisor, from the asset management arms, we're going to let the advisors keep that money and we're going to move everybody to hundred percent remote and just kind of do away with all this real estate that we have. Right. He, even though he's the most beloved guy in the industry, he'd be frog marched out the front door because their dividend would be gone. 
and uh, you know their share price would probably collapse. And uh, so they really can't do a pivot to move everybody to 100% payout and 100% remote because it would decimate their 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 share price, right? Um, and you know the moat that's created from FINRA and the SEC, you know, knowing that they have uh, knowing that it takes about two years to get through the approval process. You know, if someone decides tomorrow that they want to start a company to kind of you know, imitate what we're what we're doing, um, you know, they're they're going to be a couple of years behind us. Um, now, you can kind of think of it in this, the same terms for the mid-tier firms that if they wanted to shift, you know, to 100% payout and 100% remote, you know, a, a lot of the executives work make a lot of their own take-home pay off of overrides of big groups of advisors. So those overrides would be gone for those executives. So they, they don't want to, you know, shift, uh, shift that and, you know, get rid of the Hamptons house. Well, and, but on the flip side too, I mean, you're talking about restructuring the entire revenue model of any that's company. True. And that, I mean, and that's, that's a tough thing to do all the way down the line. I know that it's my own company it was certainly nowhere near as big as a lot of publicly traded companies. I mean, I, I I've seen the difficulty and, and, change management that can occur when you have just, when you go from a hundred to 300 employees doing it with 30,000 employees, man, I, I mean, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother art. All right. So here we are at the end of another episode of start a puzzle with me again today with Stephen Woods. Stephen's the founder and CEO of Sterling Shire. If you want to learn more about Sterling Shire, you can go to sterlingshire.com. The easiest way to get to that is just scroll on down and click that link that's in the show notes. Today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io. If you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders, Fullscale can help. We have the people and the platform to help you build and manage a team of experts. Just go to Fullscale.io, answer a couple questions, and let our platform match you up with our fully vetted, highly experienced team of software engineers, testers, and leaders. At Fullscale, we specialize in building long-term teams that work only for you. Once again, fullscale.io. And now it is time for, I like to end, I like to end my episodes of Startup Hustle with the Founders Freestyle. And what does that mean? That means I'm going to give the mic to Steven and let him say whatever he wants, however he wants, to whomever he wants, because these episodes, uh, my number one feedback that I get at the end of them is, wow, that went quick. I forgot to say this. I forgot to say that. So, Stephen, here's the mic. What do you want to say on your way out? I want to say, um, you know, thank you very much for having me. Um, and I just want to speak directly to any advisors that might be out there. You know, uh, our goal is to hire 5,000 advisors over the next five years. And, you know, I basically built this. If, if a company like Sterling Shire had existed, you know, I was making $2 million a year, paying a million dollars a year to go to work essentially. Right. And if a company like this had existed, I just would have went and worked there forever, but because it didn't, you know, I built, you know, what I believe to be a better solution. And so if you're tired of going back to the office and you want to give yourself a raise, be, be happy to, happy to talk. We're, you know, we're hiring full steam ahead. Yeah, you know, for my freestyle, I'm going to say that there's. Uh, it's easy to look at industries, and I mentioned the 800, the 8,000, or the 80,000 pound gorilla. You will hear, hear that term if you are wanting to create something new that disrupts something big. That big gorilla is this big, powerful force that oftentimes has a it has the best interest of things not being disrupted innovating or changing now um yes you have a more difficult 
uh, uphill climb when you have to do that, but that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile because uh, most of the time when these things exist and need improvement and whatever, people within the industry all feel the same way. Um, it just takes the courage and wherewithal for someone to come along and try to fix the problem. Um, and, and with it, if and when you do, those are usually uh, quite lucrative uh, outcomes, but they aren't going to come without a fight. So if you're trying to disrupt a major industry, this is why people often say that there are riches in the niches. Um, and there are, and there's a lot of money to be made there. But yeah, so, you know, I, I commend you for your courage. Uh, one, of, one, one advice I got uh, uh, from this was actually from the founder of, a, of an auto body franchise chain called Carstar. And he was in our single digit uh, podcast number. Like he was one of the first 10. I can't remember. It was like number seven or eight. And I said, tell me about yourself. And he said, well, Matt, I'm a coward. And I said, wow, that's an interesting response. Tell me more. And he said, yeah, I like to go where I like to go and do things that no one else is doing in a place where everyone will leave me alone until I get really good at it. Right. I said, I don't take on the giants. And that is the richest and niches play. And then other people take on the giants and that's okay too. So just, you know, you know what you're getting into. And once again, if you're interested in what uh, uh, learning more about what they've built at Sterling Shire. There is a link in the show notes. I wish you the best of luck down the road. And thanks for joining me, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Matt. Appreciate it. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button. Then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.